a series that we've called Dispersed. We'll be looking at verses 11 through verse 14. We want to be a people of the Word. We say that every week. We want to be a people that believe the Word of God is true, that give our lives over to the Word of God. Um, and that's why every week as we take out our phones, we take out our tablets, we take out, believe it or not, real Bibles, <laughs> and we stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. So do that at this time. Hear the Word of God from 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Oh God, I pray that your word, your word would take root in our hearts. Even as the Apostle Peter has written, it is a seed implanted in our hearts where the kingdom is growing, a kingdom that will overtake the world, a kingdom whose king is Jesus that will rule and reign forever. And God, I pray that we feel it, that we taste it, that we believe it, that we know it's true, that we put all of our hope, all of our confidence in Jesus and His kingdom, the one who is coming to reign. And we would truly say, in Him Satan is vanquished. He is Lord. He is King. Make it so for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In November, virtual reality church's first baptism took place. It took place in a 3D house online with an underground pool. And Alina Delp, 46 years old, was portrayed as a purple robot-like avatar. And she stood submerged in the water at Virtual Reality Church online, while Pastor DJ Soto proclaimed her new life in Christ and that her sins were washed away. If you don't know what an avatar is, that's a digital representation of yourself online. I'm emphasizing that. <laughs> and when her avatar, get this, floated to the surface... Dozens of congregants and family members cheered through their avatars. They sent hearts and clapped through icons that floated skyward on the screen. Now, normally a baptism in the real world takes about 10 seconds. It actually doesn't take that long, but that's what the article says. But in the VR world... The individuals stay under for about a minute, allowing them to really take in the moment for an even more impactful 
experience. Now, sadly, this is not satire. This is not the Babylon Bee that I'm reading from. This is not a John Christ comedy spoof. This really, really did happen at Virtual Reality Church that you could probably attend right now in some way if you wanted to. Just pull out your phone or your iPad. It really happened. Virtual church is a real thing, or, or kind of real. It's virtually real. You can attend church with, maybe you've heard of them, Oculus Rift glasses, goggles. You can put those on. You can find virtual reality church app. And for $25 a month, you can attend church from the comfort of your own bed. You can even be baptized through the goggles somehow as a purple avatar. You can make up whatever you want to look like at virtual reality church. Now, I have a friend who, in talking about this church, says, I bet they don't give virtually, but it's not fake money that they give. Actually, I know it's not because the founder of the church is trying to raise millions of dollars to take this church around the world. But as crazy as it sounds, like some of you want to laugh right now, but you're not laughing because it's really weird and it's strange. Some of you are just, oh, you're shocked that that would really happen. Virtual reality church, just like a video game. And as shocked as we are, as scandalized by it as we are, some of you here this morning would prefer virtual reality church. Because this experience is really awkward for you. The whole thing is very uncomfortable. To be around this many people, to have to go through getting up and coming to church every week, for some of us, it really is intimidating and it's hard. For some of us, just another day out of our week, something else on the schedule, it's difficult. And yet... As we've read through 1 Peter together, as we've studied the book together, we realize that sin and death are not virtual realities. They're real. And we experience them on a daily basis. And we need more than a virtual reality church. Peter writes to a group of Christians who are really suffering persecution. They've had friends disown them. They've been unwelcomed at family get-togethers because they are Christians. There's rumors that have spread throughout the Roman world that the Christians are religious terrorists, that they've tried to burn down the city of Rome. And they're really suffering. Some of their friends in Rome are in prison. They've heard rumors of Christians being hung on the street as street lamps and being burned to death. As you walk through the city, you can smell burnt flesh of Christians in the city of Rome. That's real. And it's painful. Suffering, sin, and death are painful realities in this world. And so it's as Peter gets to the end of the letter, he wants to emphasize you need real grace. You need a real flesh and blood kingdom. You need real people in your life. You, you need real, tangible realities of grace and mercy in your life. And the first 
tangible reality is the kingdom of Christ that you need. Notice verse 11. He says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice, he, he gets to the end and he wants to end the letter, but it's almost like he can't end the letter in this section. And, and he gets to a point as he's talked about the gospel, as he's talked about what it means to be a part of the church, this temple of God that God is building in the world, making a people for Himself holy, sprinkling them with the blood of Christ, giving them His Spirit, loving them as a Father. He gets to the end and, and, and He's explained this living hope that we have because of the resurrection. And, and He praises Christ here to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Yes, He is King. Amen. To Him, God who has revealed Himself in Jesus and given us the spirit that lives within us. Be dominion. The word for dominion means to dominate. It means to assert authority. And he says, may Jesus assert his authority in the world. May he dominate the cosmos forever and ever. Amen. Amen means yes, it is settled. This is true. What else is there to say? Jesus is king. And even as we've sung today, that is really good news for us. You see, God created the world to display His power and authority. The world was created to say, Jesus is King. And Adam in the garden was to given that responsibility to exercise God's authority and dominion in the world. When we read in Genesis, we read that Adam was created in the image of God. And at the heart of what it means to be created in the image of God is that he was created to rule. That's the way it's explained in Genesis, to have dominion over everything. Adam was placed in the garden to rule and reign on God's behalf. He was God's image, the stamp of God's rule on creation. He was to care for the garden. And yet what Adam did in the garden is he rejected God's rule. Even though he was created to display it, he rejected it. He obeyed the voice of Satan. And in Genesis 3, he joined forces with the kingdom of darkness because he believed the word of Satan more than he believed the word of God. And he joined the evil empire. Satan himself, he follows his rule, his voice. And so then God punishes Adam. He punishes even the whole created order in some sense, curses it by allowing death to invade the world. Death to invade this place that is supposed to display his power and authority. He allows it to, to spiral away into death. And instead of living in a world that is full of life, Instead of living under the authority of God, which displays life and gives life, now Adam is living in a world cursed by death. And the effects of Satan's rule begins to march forward from the garden to the ends of the earth. And things begin to spiral out of control. And God's man in the world no longer has control of the garden. He no longer has authority in the garden. He no longer is submitted to God's rule. Death begins to move throughout the earth. And what it means to be dying, what it means to experience death, it's not just physical death. We will physically die 
because we live in a world marred by death. And that means we are separated from God's goodness, the life that comes from God. We will physically die. But also, we've been severed from a relationship with God. We are separated from Him, which means we are dead spiritually. And what we deserve is to be dead spiritually forever, which is eternal death, which is eternal hell, which is to be away from God's goodness forever and ever and ever. And that's what we experience now in this world, separated from God's rule, separated from God's reign. But Peter has good news. There is one who has restored God's rule in the world. And his name's Jesus, who he praises here. To him be dominion. To him be rule. We see Jesus has come and he has restored the rule of God in the world. We see Jesus, he, he, he comes into the world and he, he displays that he is the image. He is the image. He's not created in the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God, meaning He is the rule of God in the world. And how does He show us that? Well, He stands on the edge of a boat. And as creation is swirling about in front of Him, winds and waves, the boat He's in is about to be splintered to pieces, He speaks. And you hear seagulls chirping. Peace. He displays He is the rule of God in the world. He speaks to the forces of darkness, demons, and they leave bodies. And they come and they bow before Him and say, are you the Holy One of Israel who's come to destroy you? Destroy us? He displays God's rule in the world over the created order, over the forces of darkness. He even speaks to the effects of sin, which is sickness and death. There are people who are racked with disease and He speaks to the body and the disease immediately, immediately leaves. There are people who can't see. They haven't seen their whole life. He touches their eyes and speaks and then they can see, they can hear, they can walk. He is displaying that He is God's King, the image of the invisible God, to restore God's dominion in the world. That's who Jesus is. And he gives us a picture of that kingdom that is coming. A kingdom where there will be no more sin and no more death and he will rule and reign forever. And we know that because once and for all he has pierced the heart of the curse in dying for sin. He has displayed power over sin being the perfect sacrifice of God on the cross. One who knew no sin became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God that we might be forgiven of our sin. Sin was defeated on the cross. How do we know it? Because three days later, three days later, he breathed. Brainwaves started moving in his skull. And he heard the silence of the tomb in his ears. And he opened his eyes, and for a moment it was dark until those hands reached up and pulled that gray cloth off of his face. And he got up, and I imagine his feet felt the concrete floor of the tomb, the coldness. And he took one step, and then another step, and then another step, and moved a massive rock and walked outside of a cave. Risen! Risen! 
having defeated death, having defeated sin and death, he has restored, he has restored the kingdom of God in the world. What Adam failed to do, Jesus has done. He even stared Satan in the face, the new Adam, the new man, and he resisted temptation, and he believed there was a better kingdom coming to him than the one Adam believed in the garden. Adam believed the lies of Satan. Jesus did not. He overcame temptation because of a better kingdom. And he stands before us today in his word and says, if you believe in him, that kingdom, that kingdom that will overcome sin and death forever can be your kingdom. It's given to you as an inheritance, a gift. And when you believe in Him, the Spirit of that kingdom comes to live within you. Comes to live within you like a seed that will grow. That one day will, will, be, will, will raise up and rule and reign with Jesus. Like a harvest that will be gathered by the King of Kings. That's the kingdom you can be a part of. Now the sad thing is, some of you here today are believing there's something better than that. You believe there's someone better than that king. You believe that you, the person you see in the mirror every day, can meet your needs. If things just went the way that you wanted it to go, if you just had a little bit more money, just a little bit more, I don't want to be rich, I just want to pay my bills, put a little bit away, just want a little bit more money. That's not a bad thing. Some of you are searching to meet your needs in some relationship. If I could just find that person. Or if I could just find those people. You're longing for a community and you think that's going to meet your needs and those are not bad things. But your greatest need is that you, like Adam, have rebelled against God. You, like Adam, have kicked the kingdom of God. You've pushed it away. You said, I don't want to be ruled by that king. I don't want to be ruled by that kingdom. And you've pushed it away and you deserve to die. And you deserve to, to be separated from God forever. You deserve hell and that's your greatest need. And only the kingdom of Christ meets that need for you. Your greatest need is that you need to be forgiven of your sin and it can only happen in Jesus. Some of you here today, you feel the angst of the enemy of death in your gut. Every day goes by and you get older. Every day goes by and you look back at the memories of your kids when they were just little sweet little babies. And now they're growing, growing. They're adults. They can drive. Going off to college. Getting married. Having their own kids. And you go, oh, I wish time would just stop. It ain't gonna. It's not. It's not gonna stop. No pause button on life. Death's coming. The end is coming for all of us and we feel it in our gut. That hair color we put in last night for church today. Got a sore back because we tried to play basketball with our kids. It's reminders that you can't stop it. Death's coming. And only the king named Jesus has defeated your worst enemy, death, that you have no control over. One day you're going to be laid in a gaudy, gaudy-looking piece of junk coffin. I'm sorry if you work at a funeral home, but that's what they are. 
and you're going to be cemented into a concrete vault and your corpse ain't coming out on its own. But the kingdom of Christ, who's already walked out of a first century coffin, promises you that when you die, your spirit goes to live with Him. And when He comes back to rule and reign, that corpse is going to bust out of that concrete vault. And you will rule and reign with Him forever. What else is more relevant in life than that? You can be raised from the dead. What else do you need? What else do you need? So often we are racked by fear. We are searching WebMD. We are Googling. We are trying to figure out what is that spot on my shoulder? What is that thing on my neck? What is that pus on my throat? Is it really strep throat for the fifth, sixth time? Oh my goodness. How am I going to teach that kid how to drive? Oh, they are not ready for college. And all of these fears just overwhelm us on a daily basis. And we are wrapped with fear. In the kingdom, you are given the promise because Jesus has defeated the forces of darkness that your worst nightmares will never come true. Your worst nightmares, that you would be separated from God and ruled by the forces of darkness forever, that won't come true in Jesus. And yet, more than you've ever hoped and dreamed will become a reality. So many of us here today, we are searching for just meaning and purpose in life, and we're trying to be somebody on social media. We want our name on the door. We want to be known for something. We've got this ambition, and ambition is not always wrong. It's only wrong when it's not harnessed by Jesus. And so many of us are, are searching and, 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 and we, we want to have significance in this life. In the kingdom, you will have significance. You will rule and reign with Jesus forever. Isn't that amazing? All of your goals, all of your hopes and dreams. Today, whatever goal and whatever hope and whatever dream that you have for yourself, even the good ones, even the good ones that are healthy and right, the kingdom is going to blow your mind because you're going to be given more than you could ever hope or dream for yourself in Jesus. And that's why Peter gets to the end and he can't help but say, to him be dominion forever and ever. Yes and amen. This is true. What else is there to say? The kingdom is good news. And I just want to plead with some of you here today. Just take a minute and just plead with you. You can't meet your needs, your most important needs. You can't defeat your worst enemy. You can't overcome your worst fear. You can't. You can't. Maybe that sounds harsh to you because you really want to. And you wish God would change His mind on that. You wish I would say something different. I can't. Jesus is King. And Jesus is the only one who's going to give you what you need and more than you ever wanted. Believe in Him today. I know many of you have been coming here for a while and you still haven't believed in Jesus. And we're praying for you to believe in Jesus. I just want to stop and say to you, you're never going to be happy apart from Jesus. And in Jesus, your most unhappy moments, you can still have joy because your sins are forgiven and death has been defeated. Believe in Jesus today. Trust in Him. Run to Him. Follow Him today. Say, I can't be king, but Jesus is king. And then Peter says, 
to give us some tangible realities of that kingdom, he begins to mention the names of people. He begins to point to very specific things. He points to Silvanus here, and that's another word for Silas that traveled with Paul in Acts chapter 15. He calls him a faithful brother. Silas would bring this letter to the churches. He would deliver the letter, probably explain it to them, maybe even read it for them. He's the one who's going to bring the letter. Notice the text continues that Peter had written briefly. Now, we've spent, I don't know, three or four months on this briefly written letter. It is just crammed back with all kinds of good gospel stuff. And Peter's like, yeah, I just wrote it real briefly. But we also know that it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice his purpose, exhorting declaring. The word exhort means to come alongside, and then he adds the word declare, which means to forcefully teach or coach. And he says, I've written this letter to come alongside you, to encourage you, to encourage you. Let's go. Pick it up. Keep fighting. Keep your hands up. Let's go. Let's go. That this is the true grace of God. True, genuine grace that you can't earn for yourself and that you do not deserve. Can't earn it. And you don't deserve it, but it's been given to you anyway in Christ. And he says, I want you to stand in it. Don't be budged. Stand in the promises of the gospel. That's how you fight Satan and the evil one, is you stand and you believe the word of God is true. And he says, if there is any grace in the world, it's that Jesus has given you the kingdom. Grace. Some of us, we, we often find in our heads that we say, why can't life be fair? What would be fair is that you would go to hell. But what's grace is that you've been given the kingdom in Jesus. And that's real grace. That's true. It's not virtual grace. Notice verse 13. He says, she who is at Babylon. He refers to the church that is in Rome. And he gives the church in Rome this title Babylon. Babylon in the Old Testament represented the enemies of God. They overtook the Israelites. They held them captive. They were the face, the logo of the enemies of God. And Peter says, we at the church in Rome, we're behind enemy lines. We're in the city where there's all kinds of persecution and turmoil and chaos. You are spread out through the Roman world. We at the church in Rome just want to encourage you. We want to send you greetings in the Lord. We, we are chosen by God to, to be in this role, to have His grace, to have His mercy. And we just want to say to the churches out there, stand in the grace of God. Don't be moved in it. And notice he says, so does Mark, my son. Now this would be John Mark. And if you read in Acts, you know that Peter and Paul had a sharp disagreement over Mark. We don't know if Mark was scared or lazy. We don't know really know what was going on there, but he deserted Paul. He didn't want to be a part of Paul's ministry. And, and later on, there was a disagreement about even if he could be a part of the mission. And it seems as though Peter took him under his wing and he's discipled and he's mentored by Peter to the point that when Paul comes to die, he says, bring John Mark to me because he's useful to me. And so he uses this picture of this disciple who was once a failure, but now is a testimony of grace to remind them of grace. Grace is real. Grace is tangible. Just like Peter, 
who denied Jesus and yet was restored to Jesus. Here we have Mark, who the same thing has happened to him, this story of grace. Now, look in that section of what he does. He calls them to stand in grace, and he gives them three tangible, real-life graces. First of all, it's the letter that he's written to them that is to be grace, the Word of God. And then it's the church in Rome who's suffering, but they're enduring. They are to be a grace of encouragement to them. And then John Mark, who, who has been restored, he is to be a reminder of grace. And he says, I want you to stand in the grace of the kingdom, and then I want you to be reminded of all these graces that you see God working around you. And he paints a picture for them of what it means to stand in grace. If you've ever been to the, to the beach and you stand on the ocean and you dig your feet in, what begins to happen? As you dig in, the waves come. Your feet begin to sink in when you're a kid. That was the coolest thing in the world. How does that do that? Why is that going on? And all of the sand is being washed up around your ankles, to your calves, to your knees. And, and, and that's the picture he's painting for them here. He says, I want you to dig into the kingdom. Dig in. There's persecution that's coming. There's suffering that's coming. There's trials like waves that is coming to destroy you. And as you dig into the kingdom, what's happening is grace is building up around your ankles, around your calves, around your knees, and you are standing firm in grace as you endure all of these things. Oh, that's how you stand in grace. Believe the promise amidst suffering and persecution. And along with that, you have all kinds of people who are cheering you on. Peter himself, the church in Rome, John, Mark. All of these graces just packing grains of sand around your legs so you can stand. You need that in your life. Grace, the grace you need isn't some video game some online context. It's real life people. It's the Word of God. So many of us, we we are preaching a false gospel to ourselves. We're actually believing in a fantasy world and we are the one who are mentoring ourselves in that world. Your thoughts, your expectations, your anxieties about this life, you are telling yourself things that are not true. And the extent that you are not in the Word of God is the extent you are living in a fairy tale world. Do you get that? You, you think the thoughts and anxieties in your head are real and they tell you what's true. No, it's the Word of God. And you are believing a fantasy unless you are digging into the grace of God's Word. Here, bring on some more more trials, more difficulty. I'm standing on the Word of God. The Word of God tells me what's true. You need the grace here that He talks about of other people in your life, real people who are telling you real things about God's will for your life. I meet with a group of guys most every Wednesday because I need a group of guys in my life to tell me not to worry, to to rest more, I'm so pathetic, I have to have people hold me accountable for not being on my phone too much. Group of about six guys. And I have to have that. I need like 12, really. (laughs) And and every week, it's hard, it's difficult. You don't want to get up, you don't want to have that meeting. But I leave refreshed, and all we do is pray together. 
And this week, one of them just looked at me and said, I just want to thank you. I just want you to know, said to me and Clay, we are so thankful. And this was a week that I needed that. I am a worst case scenario person. The worst thing that could happen should probably happen. And let me get ready for that, and I won't be disappointed. And that's the way I live. I live every week thinking two people are going to show up next week here. And, and I have to have people who look me in the eye and say, would you stop it? Enjoy what God's doing here. Packing grace around my ankles, my calves, my knees, saying, stand, keep your hands up, keep fighting, keep running. We have to have that in our life. And you have to be that for other people. What he describes here is the Word of God and real people delivering a letter, real people speaking into your life. And you've got to be that for other people. You know why church life is so good? Because you get to hear your life is not the worst case scenario. Your kids are bad. Everybody else's kids are bad. And sometimes you walk in and say, their kids are worse than mine. Whew. <laughs> but that, that's what church does for you. You also walk in and go, my kids are bad, but she's got cancer. I had to sit in traffic this morning because they ain't figured this parking thing out yet. But her husband just left her. That's what the church does for you. And as that goes on in your life, you are able to stand in grace, but then you begin to speak grace into other people's lives. I have a friend this week who's going through an extremely difficult time. They are suffering unjustly. And I, I don't know if it was just the Spirit of God according to this letter, but I just wanted to stop and say, hey, you remind me of Jesus. The way you're enduring this reminds me of Jesus. And, and that's what happens in the life of the church. We have to be that for one another. We have to pack those grain, every little grain of sand around our legs so we can stand in the grace of God. And then this is one glorious way he tells us to do it. Verse 14. I'll let you read ahead. <laughs> Greet one another with the kiss of love. It's a new frontline agenda <laughs> that we're going to start today. Some of you are looking for the doors. <laughs> this would have been like a handshake, except not as sterile as a handshake. And it would have happened in worship. You would have seen this. I'll never forget my, our wedding. And so after the wedding service, Danae is from a Cuban family. And so they usher us to this, to this room to the side where the family is going to greet us. And I'm standing there watching men begin to, to kiss my wife on the face, some on the lips, relatives. And then they begin to kiss me. <laughs> Not on the lips, because that wouldn't happen. Young, old, Little Hispanic women coming through the line. This kiss of congratulations. And I am wanting to just dig a hole in the wall and get out of there. At that time, I, I, I didn't like for anybody to touch me, much less kiss me on, on the face. 
people I don't even know. And Danae is just smiling, and she is just loving every minute of it. And I'm like, who is that guy? Why are you letting this go on? Why are you letting this happen to me? And yet, in the context of the church, maybe it's not a kiss, but there has to be ways in which we declare and say to one another, I love you. And we're in this together. And, and I'm committed to you. And, and you, have to, you, you have to kind of come out of your shell every now and then and be willing just to say to one another, man, I love you. What do you need? No, I really love you. I'm thankful for you. What do you need? And, and we express love in ways in the context of the church that the world doesn't understand and is uncomfortable with at times. We, we emphasize that we are a people who really do love one another. We really do. We're really thankful for one another. That's why here we, we have the lights on. Now I know some of you think I'm just talking about it. I don't, I don't care what's going on in any other church. But we keep the lights on in worship because this is worship. Right there, right there. You're a part of the worship service. You can't hide in here. Now I know some of you, you really do. You have anxiety about this. Just hold on to that chair. And let people love on you. Let people encourage you. Just hold on. It's okay. You need it. You need it. But, but we, this is not you here in the dark hiding, watching something up here. We together are worshiping Jesus. And, and we have to be reminded we're not alone in the world. And that's what the church here who is enduring severe persecution remind one another you're not alone. Embrace one another. In love. This is a place where you don't get to choose who cares about you. You see, you think if you get to pick who cares about you, you're going to be happier. That's not the way the gospel works. God pursued you in love when you were not pursuing Him. And every week in the context of community in the church, people pursue you in love whether you like it or not. You don't get to pick who cares about you. And we come in here and we love one another. And, and we go through success together. We get the job. We have the, we have the kids. We get accepted in school. And then we embrace failure together. You lost your job. You had the miscarriage. You weren't accepted. And I'm here for you. I love you. That's the way the church is. That's the way the church is supposed to be. It's not a virtual love. It's a flesh and blood love that you experience every week. The Easterlings uh, and Meredith Howard and uh, a few others from church often come to my boys' basketball games, Isaac and Jonah. And that is such a... We're, we're so thankful for that because we're far away from our family and when they show up, our kids' eyes just light up. The Easterlings are here. Carrie's here. Uh, we, we have folks from church who are here. And after every game, they stand around and they wait for our boys to leave the locker room. And, and they are nasty, <laughs> sweaty. And they come out of that locker room and they just hug on them. Now, I don't let them touch me after their basketball game. <laughs> My car smells like adolescent men. <laughs> and it is raunchy. <laughs> and they hug all over them. No shame. We love those folks. And, and we've had people ask them, are you related? 
Are you related to the, to the Easter? Are you related to those people? Why do they come to your game? And oh, they, we just go to church together. And they're, it's just family. That's what we do here. We're family. We love one another. And, and it's displayed in the way that when we see one another, our lo- eyes light up. There's concern about what's going on in the life of others. And, and it is a testimony of love. And then he says here, peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the way he ends the letter. Peace. The opposite of peace is conflict, chaos. There's a war going on. And the greatest battle you have is your war with God. I don't want to do everything you say, God. I want to do it my way. And there's tension. There's conflict. And if you keep fighting God, that tension and conflict is going to push you all the way to hell. And that is your greatest battle. And he says, no. Notice what he says. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Remember we've talked throughout the letter, in Christ theology. It's so important to understand the gospel. That when you believe the gospel, you're in Christ. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His death becomes your death. His kingdom becomes your kingdom. You are an heir, you are a son in Christ. And here, notice, in Christ you have peace. In your sin... God's disposition towards you is fury and it's anger and He hates sin and He will judge and punish sin. But in Christ, there's peace. The word is actually tranquility, shalom. The war is over. He's no longer angry and furious with you in Christ. He has peace with the Son. He loves the Son. He delights in the Son. And in Christ, you have that same peace. And that affects the way you see the world. Notice he writes to a church that is suffering persecution. Family members hate them. They're losing their job. They've heard of relatives in Rome who are being burned. And he says, have peace. Have peace in Christ. You can have peace in Christ. In the most difficult of circumstances, you can have peace. The problem with a lot of us is we don't understand what our greatest battle is. Where there's, we look at our life and we say, I don't have peace in this area. My kids are a mess. My finances are a mess. Calgon, take me away. Like, some of y'all don't even get that. So It's a commercial about peace. Do some soap or something. <laughs> but we're looking for peace to just make it stop. I gotta have peace. That's not your greatest battle. That's not the greatest war you're in. The, the greatest battle, the greatest war you're in is your war with God over sin. And, and your worst problem is that you want to kick against Jesus' rule in your life. Understand this, Jesus will demolish everybody who's opposed to him. The sky will break open, and like a bulldozer, he will come in and begin to vanquish everyone who opposes him. And in your heart, you want to oppose him. But that's a war you don't want to fight. And in Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. In Jesus, you have aligned yourself with his kingdom. When you believe in Him, when you submit to Him, when you follow Him, you are no longer at odds with Him. You will rule and reign with Him. And He says in a world, and even with a heart that has a tendency to be anti-Christ, you can have peace with Christ when you believe in Him. When you trust in the gospel. 
And here's the reality. Those kids are not virtual screamers, are they? You can't turn the computer off. Those bills aren't virtual, even though you may pay them online. They're real, and you really do owe somebody. Life is not lived in a virtual reality. Some of you have had real friends betray you, and you've been hurt. It's painful. Some of you are going to hear real heart monitors beep and flatline. We're going to gather in real funeral homes, in real gravesides. This world is real and it's hard and it's difficult. And yet the promise of the kingdom is this. You can have real peace. Don't you want real peace? Don't you want flesh and blood peace? Here's how real it is. It's real as the people seated right next to you. It's real as the flesh and blood of this room. That's how real the kingdom is. If you would believe in Jesus in a world that is not virtual, but a world that is real, you can know real peace. Would you believe in Him today? Let's pray.